Good morning, everybody. Whew, that's bright. Good morning. Hello. Hi. It's very nice to see you. I'll just say right now there is a handout for the talk today. They are, should be on either table by the door, like they, um, which is where we like to put them. Uh, if we run out, don't worry. Um, I can make more. Okay, and then I'll just have them on me along with many other things for the rest of the week. So if we run out, just let me know if you didn't get one and you want one, and I will make sure to have more on me starting as soon as possible, but definitely by this time tomorrow. Hello, everybody, and thank you for coming to the first 11th hour lecture presentation of the week. Um, is there anyone here who is not taking a summer writing festival class? Hello, hooray! Hello, I am Margaret LeMay and I'm excited to see you. I am the Associate Director for the Iowa Summer Writing Festival and Curator of the 11th Hour Series and I hope that those of you who are just joining us because you can will come every day this week and every day next week, the weekdays at this time because we will be here. Festival attendees, I hope you had a restful night and are ready for a wonderful day, or having a wonderful day. Let's start by spending some time with our longtime and greatly talented festival faculty member, Diana Getch. Diana is the author of three books of poetry, five prize-winning poetry chapbooks, and Life in Transition, a series of 31 essays that ran in the American Scholar. Her work has appeared in The New Yorker, Poetry, Best American Poetry, and the Pushcart Prize. And she has taught creative writing everywhere from MFA programs, MFA programs to prisons to public schools. We should note that Diana will also be reading her work tonight at Prairie Lights Bookstore at 7 p.m. and teaching for three hours in between. Diana has a busy day. Please help me welcome her now as she's here with us to discuss titles. Then I gotta put this somewhere, don't I? You can, or you can just leave it. Hold it. Okay, I can hold it. Okay, we'll work it out. Good morning. Has anyone started the exercise? So let's say that everyone to this side of that bright light or the clock, please do. Uh, you do the poem by Louise Glick on the left-hand side of the page, and everyone to to this side of the clock. You do uh, the poem by Angelo Verga on the right-hand side. Two minutes. Read the poem to yourself. Give it a title. If you're a very social person and have had good luck so far in your social interactions and you want to test that luck, you can do it with a partner. <laughs> so two minutes. And just, just try your hand. At what, what would be the best possible title you could think of having read it once. If you know the title of one of these poems, then do the poem on the other side. 
you might jot down a couple of possibilities. You could brainstorm it with yourself or your partner. So for this talk, um, it'll probably be poetry heavy. And the reason why is because it's easy. I mean, you can see the whole poem. You can think about it. It's right there. It's a lot easier than watching a, a full-length feature movie and debating the title. We'd be out of here before the movie's over. So, but, but I think you'll, you'll quickly see that um, the, the principles of this talk could go really for any genre, anything, uh, even naming a boat. Um, you know, so anytime you give something a name or a title, um, you're kind of in that same area. I, I think actually everyone, everyone, every in ordinary person becomes a poet the moment they have to name something. It's something about the act of titling, the act of naming. Um, so we're going to come back to this exercise later in the hour, and um, we'll just go ahead and go forward. So uh, we'll start with just a poem. And if you don't mind, I'll read this out loud. And let's do the same exercise just in our heads. How would you title this poem? Lately, I've become accustomed to the way the ground opens up and envelops me each time I go out to walk the dog or the broad-edged silly music the wind makes when I run for a bus. Things have come to that. And now, each night I count the stars, and each night I get the same number. And when they will not come to be counted, I count the holes they leave. Nobody sings anymore. And then, last night, I tiptoed up to my daughter's room and heard her talking to someone, and when I opened the door, there was no one there, only she on her knees, peeking into her own clasped hands. This is back when Amory Baraka was named Leroy Jones, and here's his title. So I'm going to show you a couple more, and we'll, we'll talk a little bit. So here's another poem by Shoshana Shai from Wisconsin. Anybody know Shoshana, Shoshana Shai? My lemon-colored whisper-weight blouse with keyhole closure and sweetheart neckline is tucked into a pastel silhouette skirt with side-slit vents and triplicate pleats when I realize in the sunlight through the windshield that the cool yellow of this blouse clashes with the buttermilk heather in my skirt, which makes me slightly queasy. However, the periwinkle in the pattern on the sash is sufficiently echoed by the twill uppers of my buckle snug sandals, while the accents on my purse pick up the pink in the button stitches. And then, as we pass through weapons check, it's reassuring to note how the yellows momentarily mesh and make an overall pleasing composite. All right, one other. We could just do this all day. <laughs> it's like I discovered a new game. PowerPoint. Um, all right, so this is a poem by Denver Butson. 
A man standing at the bus stop reading the newspaper is on fire. Flames are peeking out from beneath his collar and cuffs. His shoes have begun to melt. The woman next to him wants to mention it to him that he is burning, but she is drowning. Water is everywhere in her mouth and ears and her eyes. A stream of water runs steadily from her blouse. Another woman stands at the bus stop freezing to death. She tries to stand near the man who is on fire to try to melt the icicles that have formed on her eyelashes and on her nostrils to stop her teeth long enough from chattering to say something to the woman who is drowning, but the woman who is freezing to death has trouble moving with blocks of ice on her feet. It takes the three some time to board the bus, what with the flames and water and ice, but when they finally climb the stairs and take their seats, the driver doesn't even notice that none of them has paid because he is tortured by visions and is wondering if the man who got off at the last stop was really mauled to death by wild dogs. <laughs> How is every little thing? Um, but that's not the title. The title of this poem is this. So something is going on in these poems. There's some kind of strategy here happening. The titles matter. They have an effect. Um, and I think what they all have in common is there's a kind of a space, wouldn't you say, between the title and the poem. There's some difference here going. The title does one kind of thing with language, and the poem does another. So this space. Um, they're also, they feel like different elements, don't they? So there's space visually, obviously, but there's this space informationally. There's also space maybe lyrically, um, you know, bringing my son to the, you know, it's, it's, it could be a newspaper headline, and then it's followed by some other genre, like fashion um, writing or, or something of that kind. Uh, we could further say that the titles each perform the function of contextualizing the poem. They give us information that we might not otherwise know. We would definitely, I mean, the Baraka poem, Preface to a 20-Volume Suicide, one of the spectacular titles of contemporary poetry, also one of the spectacular poems. Um, it, it gives us a context we otherwise wouldn't know. Uh, it's not as, it's not as much like a newspaper headline as the other two titles. These are like datelines, the other two titles, but it's, it's a kind of a poetic dateline. And then finally, uh, there's a dance going on. And maybe that's the most important element. There should be a dance between the title and the poem. And we know there are many kinds of dances. It's not just one. And some poems ask for you know, a foxtrot, and other poems ask for a mosh pit. Um, so something's going on with titles. Uh, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to uh, give you fairly quickly, actually, 10 principles of titles. And the reason why I'm doing this talk is because it never really gets talked about in any kind of an organized way. And I don't pretend for this to be authoritative. Most of these principles I've stolen. Most everything a teacher teaches has been stolen. And, and most of the uniqueness of a teacher is that they are a unique anthology of things they've stolen. I've stolen things that the other teacher hasn't. And maybe 10% of what I have to give you 
is me. Um, so, but it doesn't matter because it's a stewardship. We're just passing on some things about titles that rarely get passed on in any kind of organized way. Um, and I find myself running through some of these principles in a workshop situation when someone says, what can you tell us about titles? Well, I've got an hour. Um, so, see that? Now, I worked hard at that. <laughs> it took me hours. Um, so the shorter the work, the more work the title does. And this is simple math. I mean, you know, the shorter the work, the more percentage of that work is a title, and especially so in, in poems, but it's also so in, uh, you know, flash fiction and things like that. You could, you could wreck a work of literature that's short more easily with a title than a longer work. Uh, so here's a, a June Jordan poem, The Paradox in Rhyme. When he comes on top of me, I am high as I can be. And she made a choice with this title. She made it into some kind of compositional, literary, <laughs> philosophical title. Well, you see, it's just a paradox. Let's examine this Cartesian issue, and, uh, and then it's a sex poem. Um, now, if she chose a different title, such as Fred, <laughs> this is a much more personal poem. I mean, look at the radical shift. Because it's such a short poem, it's just different. Um, but again, she went for this very mental in the head type of title, maybe to create that dance, that paradox, because the poem is anything but. Um, so here's another short poem by William Matthews. <clears throat> now, th with this poem, it's clear there is only one right title. <laughs> Unless you come up with a better title than that one. He loved these one-liners. I mean, you know, would that really work? <laughs> You'd have to change the word poem. But anyway, so moving on. And, and here's a great, this guy named Sparrow, talk about a short name. Uh, he's a great writer of, of short poems. He lives up in the woods somewhere in upstate New York. One night I spoke to the stars, write a poem, they said. What kind of poem, I asked, doesn't matter. Just make it short. <laughs> you know, and, and the title here is, is not as flashy as we've seen in, in other examples so far, but it seems right. You know, the stars are the star <laughs> of the poem. Here's another short poem by Sparrow. I love this poem. <laughs> you know, here, the, 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 the content of the poem is flashy, and the title is, is it's a placeholder. It's, it's, it does its job. Let's just get the hell out of the way. And so, um, yeah, try to forget that poem. <laughs> so uh, a second principle, explanatory material, <coughs> excuse me, that's cut or omitted from the text <clears throat> often makes for a good title. This happens so often for me and for other writers and for people who show me work and ask for me to suggest a title. The first thing I do is I look at what I suggest cutting. And I think this is the case because, um, you know, from that beginning, <clears throat> you know, if Denver Butson told us the time of day when the person is on fire and the woman is freezing and the man has visions of being mauled, um, it would interrupt what's going on in the poem. 
So often what's extraneous in a poem is explanatory material that, that cuts through you know, something lyric. But it, it, again, it's the same in prose, though. If, 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 if doing a piece of explanation of the setting interferes with maybe the headlong pace that you would want for a particular piece of fiction, then raise it to the title. And this happens all the time. So Ezra Pound's poem, famous poem, In a Station of the Metro, you know, what, what would that be without that title? The title gives the setting, but it can't be part of the poem. It completely um, obstructs you know, what the poem is doing. So he raises that to the title. And often in a draft, that material in the title is, is in the body of the poem. You know, and then he knew he had to cut it. I'm just hypothetically, I didn't interview Ezra Pound for this talk, but you know, uh, the person knows they have to cut it, but then, but then along comes the task of making a title and it's like, oh, wait a minute, you can put it up here. Here's a, here's a classic uh, poem. It's a long poem, you know, Dylan Thomas's Fern Hill, a beloved poem. And here it's really obvious. I mean, look how lyric the poem is. And then the title, just give it a name. It's all happening right here at Fern Hill. It's not a spectacular title, but it's the right title. And it's a handle. You know, you say Fern Hill, and people just, I mean, they already know what you're talking about. They have a feeling, a lyric feeling. I mean, it's such a beloved poem. This goes on and on. You kind of don't want it to stop. But it would stop for a moment if he says, well, you see, this all happened at Fern Hill. And it was, you know, whatever. We didn't need that. Now, here's an overly explanatory title like we really care about Wordsworth biography. I mean, we would care about every autobiographical diary type moment. You know, if he wrote really great poems, then we would care. But, you know, now is the time in his life to write these great poems, and this is not a great title. It's unwieldy. It has extra stuff. We don't care what motel you stayed in. Uh, why not put the time of day, and et cetera, et cetera. So when people remember this poem, they just do that. You know, and Rick Jackson, who teaches here, he puts Tintern Abbey in one of his top ten. But when he, when he tells us his top ten, he doesn't say, well, and where do you get a load of lines composed a few miles above Tintern? No, it's Tintern Abbey. So we've, we've helped him out there uh, by mistitling it. And then here's, here's an explanatory title that does an awful lot of work. I mean, nowhere in Joyce's um, novel does he say, well, okay, this is the Cyclops chapter, or this is the Telemachia, you know, the, first, the beginning of, of the Odyssey and Ulysses' journey um, with the child of the sun. Uh, but he's got it in the title. His title does an enormous amount of work. It, it, gives, it lays down the contextual parallel, the mythological framework that, that he's using, and relieves him effortlessly, really, just by this title, it relieves him of the burden of always having to, you know, contextualize it that way. Um, it has a huge effect over the work, uh, and yet it seems to be a pretty simple title. So here's another principle. Flashy titles, these are fun. They can work if you've got the game. Uh, flashy titles that don't work might be waiting for better writing. I've got, I've, got, I've got this title, 
I've, I've always wanted to write a poem called Learning How to Lie. And I tried. I tried several times. It was never as good as the title. And then uh, one of my books was titled uh, The Job of Being Everybody, which I, I think is the best title of any book but the po that I have. But the poem is not nearly as good. It does not have the game. I didn't have the game, maybe, at the time for, for that title. Um, but uh, let's take a look at some great title. Here's a fantastic title. Love Calls Us to the Things of This World, the great Richard Wilbur poem. You've got you, you to have a lot of game for this kind of title. It is lofty. It, it makes a hell of a claim. I mean, it's a statement. I mean, what a title. But, but then you look at some of the lines in the poem. Can you see the underlines? I mean, he kind of equals the majesty of the title several times in the poem. The deep joy of their impersonal breathing uh, the punctual rape of every blessed day. And then my favorite, let there be clean linen for the backs of thieves. I mean, he's got game. You know, go ahead, try a title like that. Give it a shot. Um, here's, some, here's some great flashy titles, extravagant titles, but, you know, Flannery O'Connor. You know, can you get away with that? Carver had the best. He was, he was a great title. I don't know why um, on this computer this is reformatting. These were supposed to be right across, so I apologize for the formatting. Um, I love that title. So this, uh, some funny titles really work well. It's my friend Tim. <laughs> it's a great title. You know. Now, you, you're going to want to read this poem. All right, who can, you know, can he back that one up? Richard Hugo is a great, great titler as well. I think he and Carver are probably my favorite contemporary titlers. There's David Kirby, a wonderful poet. I think I'm going to call my wife Paraguay. <laughs> Go ahead, David. <laughs> I want to read that poem. It's Tom, Thomas Wolfe title. This is a masterpiece of a story. Do people still read this story? Only the dead know Brooklyn. Here's a Ginsburg poem. <laughs> I didn't even have to tell you it's a Ginsburg poem, did I? Tony Hoagland. <laughs> T Tony loves extravagant titles. He's got a poem called Dickhead. He's got, uh, he's got uh, Honda Pavarotti. Uh, it's one like Dave had watched too many kung fu episodes. I mean, that's a title. <laughs> and here's a title of mine that raises some uh, attention. So then there's simple titles. There's only one best title, and sometimes it needs to be simple. And um, there's lots of perfectly fine, great, workable, simple titles. You know, really, Walton, do we need anything else? The Fish. Elizabeth Bishop was a the poet. Most of her titles was the, right, the moose. <laughs> oh, no, I think she, she for, forwent the the. It was just moose. Uh, at the Fish Houses, um, The Man Moth, uh, you know, very simple. Mrs. Dalloway, this, that's all we need. You say, the, you say the title, you know where you are. You know, she got the right title and it happens to be simple. Here are some movie titles that are very simple. And they certainly work. Casablanca, I mean... Can you think of a better title? 
It's stolen. It's the name of a city in Morocco. How about that title? <laughs> I mean, beforehand, you wouldn't think it would work, but my god, I mean, it's, it's exactly what it needs to be. Seinfeld. You know, why does it work so well? Well, the show's so good, but still, the title works. Um, maybe it's because the show is, is, is almost a culmination of the great tradition of Jewish comedians. So you have, uh, a, you know, an obviously Jewish name, and that's it. Seinfeld. And how about titles? <laughs> Simple title. It's just fine. Could have called it something else, I guess. <coughs> Stolen titles. Sometimes the best titles are ready-made. Go ahead and use them. So here, here's, a, here's a stolen title. Um, William Matthews. Did you know that was his title? It don't mean a thing if it, don't, if it ain't got that swing. So I heard a recording of him reading this title of his next poem, and then he stopped and he said, well, you know, it's a stolen title, of course. Um, you know, it was Duke Ellington's title. And then he stopped again and he said, well, you know, when you think about it, all titles are stolen. I mean, every single title is stolen. He says, I've got a poem named Onion, stolen from the vegetable of the same name. <laughs> I mean, really, think about it. I mean, we're all just borrowing this language. Um, so go ahead. Uh, here's a Carver title, stolen. Here's a, here's a group with a stolen name, America, named a great song. You know that song, right? Ventura Highway. Great song. Great title. Totally stolen after the highway of the same name. Here's a stolen title from Macbeth, The Sound and the Fury, from that great monologue toward the end of Macbeth. And here's another stolen title from Macbeth, Anne Sexton's All My Pretty Ones. Great title. Great choice. Splendor in the Grass is a Wordsworth title. Is a play uh, that was made into a movie. All right, so this, this is the 10% of this talk that is purely mine, and I think this should be obvious, and it, it, often people neglect this. Titles need to work both forwards and backwards. They need to serve a function before we ever see the work of literature. It has to attract us or at least not turn us off or get out of the way, especially if it's a great work of literature. But the title needs to work before we ever know the piece. And what happens often is that people, you know, the writer, him or herself, obviously does know the piece, and they make a title, what would be most fitting now that I know every little thing about my piece? And they make a title that um, can be very abstruse, not lyric, not, they make a title that's fitting like summarizes it or something of this kind. And they forget about standing in the shoes of a reader who's never read that piece. Well, it's got to work backwards, and it's got to work forwards. So um, here's an example of a title that does not work, Among the Ash Heaps and Millionaires. It might work, but it's kind of busy. Um, it's not very poetic. This writer tried another title, Tremalchio in West Ag, until he found this, Great Gatsby. These were working titles, you know, and then Great Gatsby works forward and backward. You got alliteration, 
Um, but then backwards, you know, you look back on the book, of course it centers on this one person. And he's being called great, but by the time you look back at the book, great has many meanings. You know, great could be large, great could be Nick saying you're worth the whole damn bunch put together. I don't care if you have a fake name. Um, and, uh, and then it works as a handle. You know, Gatsby, have you read Gatsby, the great Gatsby? Um, so here's a friend of mine wrote a memoir about uh, a mother who is overbearing and uh, poisonously so, narcissistic mother. And this title to me is absolutely cringeworthy. And it was her revised title. The first title was so much better. I more than love you. I mean, fantastic title. I don't know why she ran away from that title. Well, maybe I do. So a student of mine titled a short story, The Grief Farm. I told her, nobody wants to read a story <laughs> called The Grief Farm. And I know that it's a backwards title. She just said, OK, it's the most fitting title. There's grief in it. She has this garden. It's a problem. And you know, The Grief Farm. Um, so that's a backwards title. Uh, here's a forward title that has no backwards mojo. That movie, I Know What You Did Last Summer. I mean, after the movie, during the movie, the title has no importance. I don't, anybody ever see this movie? What did, what did the person do last summer? <laughs> I have no idea, what, they, what did they do? You know, but after the movie, yeah, well, okay, yeah, I know you stuffed somebody's head in a bus locker <laughs> last summer. Um, so I, I, I just don't think it's a great title. And here's, here's a great poet with a terrible title. Dennis Johnson's selected poems is titled The Throne of the Third Heaven of the Nation's Millennium General Assembly. <laughs> this title works neither forward nor backward. I don't care how fitting it is. Uh, you know, like, come on, Dennis. Okay. Uh, bad title. So now, this, here's an interesting title. The, you know the movie Sideways? Okay, so Sideways. It's a, it's a movie about two uh, miserable bachelor dudes getting drunk in wine country. And, you know, Sideways is pretty good. I'd see a movie called Sideways. I don't know what it, what it would be, but okay, things on their side, people in trouble. Uh, let me watch other people's problems for a while. That's helpful for me. Uh, okay, fine, that could work. And then long after the movie, I just said, why did they call it Sideways? Why in the world did they call it Sideways? And then it occurred to me, like a year later, I kept on thinking about it. My upstairs neighbor was in the movie. She played the mother. She's a character actress, Mary Louise Burke. I kept on thinking about sideways, and Mary Louise didn't know why they called it sideways. And then I thought about how wine bottles are stored. Now, it's been my own theory, but a little spark went off. I said, maybe it's that. And then for this talk, I looked at the movie poster. I don't think it's a great title, though. All right, so here's some uh, other forward, backward. Here's some movie titles. Gone with the Wind. I mean, just great titles. How great is that title? Rebel Without a Cause. Zero Dark Thirty. More recent movie. I think it's a fantastic title. It's tremendously evocative. Very appropriate for the tone. This is military title. Anybody from the military? This is, this is, what is it, half an hour after dawn? Is that what that is? Something like that? It was just in the middle of the night. Middle of the night is zero dark 30? Yeah, just any time in small hours. Totally Are you military, sir? No, 
I mean, how great is that type? Breakfast at Tiffany's. I mean, it's just a great time. I mean, a great movie, great, even better book. It's a perfect book. It's 108 pages of perfection. If you want to read 108 pages of perfection, reread this, Truman Capote's book. But the title, I mean, it's as good as the book. How often does that happen? Maybe the best title ever, Last Tango in Paris. So here's some funny titles that I think work both ways. Don't do that. Wouldn't you read a poem called Don't Do That? I, I recommend it, by the way. I think this poem is as good as the title. Let the dog drive. I was like that title. I mean, I want to read that. So Mark Halliday, the poet, he's a very funny poet, he sent me an email and he said, uh, I want you to write a poem with this title. <laughs> that would not be good. I've been trying for three years. I think I made a discovery finally. Come and fetch these stupid kids. This is so much better than eat, pray, love. I'm sorry. It, it does not work. Come and fetch these stupid In fact, that should be the title of eat, pray, love. You know, some American consumer has a sad day and she puts her plastic credit card in motion. Okay, enough of that. Um, so here's a couple, here's a couple uh, things if you're stumped. Try counting seven lines up from the bottom of whatever you're writing and look for your title there. Do not ask me why this works. It often works. Now, if it doesn't work, don't blame me. You can count up another seven lines. It's like solitaire, you have three more cards. Uh, but that doesn't work as often. You know, usually if you don't get it by the first seven lines. I don't know why that works, but th th I think this embodies a spirit of play, which you ought to have as well. Even if you're looking for a serious title, there needs to be a kind of a playful distance, uh, a willing to entertain a lot of things, brainstorm, that kind of thing. Try an omni-title. I have discovered certain omni-titles, a title that will go with any work of literature. Would you like to see an omni-title? This is, I'm gonna give you the ultimate. I really should charge extra for this. That, my friends, that will go with any work of literature. I won't tell the story of how I discovered this title. I, um, it's too long, but okay. So bringing my son to the police station, be thinking, Oh, wait a minute, where's, the, this is cutting, this is a stranger in my shoes. All right, so, love song of J. Alfred Prufrock, stranger in my, you see the shoes down there, it's, it's reformatting my PowerPoint. The Odyssey, no, stranger in my shoes. Just try out an Omni title, just for fun, just play with it. It's better than most people's titles of most things. So here are a couple other, uh, Omni titles. I'm not sure if this does as well, but here's it. Why I Never Married. You could put this, I mean, the Odyssey. Yeah, Why I Never Married. You know, because look what happened to this guy. Okay, so, <laughs> importance of manners. Try it out. I mean, really, you don't think it'll work, but look at it for a while. How we suffer. <clears throat> just omni titles. So that's just little rules of, th I don't know how, I don't know why this works. I, I, I actually trust something more if I don't know why it works. All right, enough of that. <coughs> Untitled, I do not accept. I don't accept. Uh, I call these orphans, and it's just, it's like not naming your kid. And what, what you're really doing, and maybe that's the point of this talk, if, if you're a new writer, do not shirk the task. 
it's hard for a lot of people to title things and they want things to be untitled or um, give it a shot, give it a try, uh, even, even you know, if you're embarrassed later by the title you tried, you, it's, it's much better than untitled. There are no words that could possibly, no, there's words, you just haven't found them yet, so. Um, all right, and this stuff I don't like either, and I see a lot of it, poems, sonnets, estina, you might as well call it untitled. Equally sad, uh, unless you're going meta, and so here's a Billy Collins, the opening of a Billy Collins sonnet called Sonnet. All we need is 14 lines. Well, 13 now. And after this one, just a dozen. <laughs> What's going to happen for the rest of this sonnet? And here's a poem of mine called Poem, where I, I, I just set out to make fun of people who title their poems Poem, because I don't know what the hell is going on with that. And you see it all over the place, especially in older anthologies. You probably right away notice the title of this poem is Poem, and that's because it's exactly what I plan on writing. In fact, I've already begun, sort of. Um, you know, these ponderous poems. But for the most part, you know, get a title. Drop titles can be gimmicky, though sometimes there's nothing better available. And for those of you who don't know what a drop title is, I just did it. It's when it, it elides, the title elides into the first line of the poem, which generally doesn't begin with a capital letter. So it's a drop title. And it's, it's deceptively easy to do. It looks like it's hard, but it's not. It's a little like a sestina. It's more cumbersome than it is skillful. Um, but here's a good drop title, Kim Adonisio's great poem, Dead Girls. And I, I've just given the first stanza. It goes on for about 10 stanzas. It's an angry poem. Dead girls show up often in the movies, face down in the weeds beside the highway. Kids find them by the river, in the woods, etc. And later in the poem, she says, uh, they can get a plot moving faster than anything. And you see the speed of that line in the drop title. Uh, here's not quite a drop title, but it has that kind of effect. The great Marianne Moore poem called Poetry. I, too, dislike it. So it has a little bit of a drop title feel. Even though it's a separate sentence from the first line, the title is uh, poetry is the um, antecedent to the first pronoun, it. And I thought that was, that was very skillful, famous beginning of a poem. And the title is an implied last line. Keep in mind that when the reader is done reading what you've written, Often their first move is to go back up to the title. What was this thing called? Or let me just behold it again. And you know, if you're writing a novel or a long story, novella, often they do that intermittently. They'll look back at the title. They'll look at the title when they reopen the book. The title is, is sort of commenting on the whole thing. And um, for those of you who, on this side, who were looking at the Louise Glick poem, I'm just going to give you a spoiler. Here's what this poem is titled. Did you get it right? Now oh, people are very happy. <coughs> look what happens at the end of the poem when you look back up at the title, Mock Orange. It is not the moon, I tell you. It is these flowers lighting the yard. I hate them. I hate them as I hate sex. The man's mouth sealing my mouth. The man's paralyzing body. And the cry that always escapes, the low humiliating premise of union. In my mind tonight, I hear the question, 
and pursuing answer fused in one sound that mounts and mounts and then is split into the old selves, the tired antagonism. Do you see we were made fools of and the scent of mock orange drifts through the window? How can I rest? How can I be content while there is still that odor in the world? And you look back up at the title and you see that word mock and resonates so much with the central emotion. We were made fools of. We're being used. Our emotions, we're just being manipulated by some larger unified being. Mock orange. What a fortuitous title. It also happens to actually be a biological name of something. So it's a great title. Um, but we can still play the game. Okay, so the right-hand side of the room. Uh, what do we got? What kind of titles we have for this poem? I don't see them, the bearded men, the men who sit, knees tucked in, sneakers on wet midtown street. I don't see them waiting to be fed. Hundreds of them, many black, some whites, most young and thin, a few gray women. I don't see them waiting for the bread, the meat, the lettuce, mustard, tomato at 7 a.m., the breakfast meal the Franciscan friars give them, the giant coffee urn at the other end where they squat and drink and eat or hide the napkin-covered treasure for later. I don't see them, the crusty skin, the matted hair. I see the smooth-legged, no-split-ends women on their way to work rushing across the street. I see them. They don't smell. They don't spit. I pray to them. I beg for what I need. What do we title this? Lowercase. Lowercase. So you kind of did a June Jordan uh, strategy. Uh, it, it has rhetorical, it points to something other than the content. It points to a literary aspect of the poem. What other title? This lady. Vision. Okay. Went simple on us. What did you title it? Blinded. Blinded. The unseen scene. The unseen scene. It's kind of mental. A little mental in the head. Okay. You just give you a shot at this stuff. What did you title it, sir? Exodus 20. Exodus 20. <laughs> That's what he titled it. I see them, I don't see them. And I'm not saying there's a right or wrong to it, but it's a poem that I'm very fond of. I know Angelo, and the title works really well when I think of the I see them, I don't see them. It, it is interesting rhetorically. I mean, there's no period in there, and it stays lowercase. I see them, I don't see them. So uh, thank you, everyone, and uh, have a great week. <laughs>